gospel lesson comes to us from the good news according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the gospel of our Lord. I really like pressure and titled my sermon, The Greatest Sermon Ever. So be prepared to be absolutely amazed. Um, not true. It's a reference to this sermon of Jesus, by Jesus. It's his very first recorded sermon. I think you can make an argument that maybe the sermon on the mountain that he gave later uh, might be the greatest sermon ever. But as I hope to prove to you at the end, we learn a lot about the point of sermons and also of ministry and of the Christian life and of just being human and what Jesus was all about from this short little episode in which he gave his first recorded sermon. Okay, so here, perhaps, arguably, the greatest sermon ever, Jesus himself. He has his first cry, and it's, he doesn't do so bad, actually, you know? Uh, if you were to read this, Jesus ha had just been sent out by the Spirit into the wilderness He'd uh, faced our temptations and been victorious against them by uh, resisting and by not giving in to temptation. Uh, he had conquered Satan and sin, as it were, out in the wilderness. And then the Spirit drives him back into the region around where he grew up. And his fame is spreading everywhere. He is saying amazing things. He is doing amazing things. And there's all of this attention and fame around him. And then he goes home again. You notice, like, uh, it's actually because of the Bible that people say a, a prophet has uh, no honor in his hometown, right? It's hard to go home again. So he goes home here to his home church, as it were, and he gives a sermon. The sermon, as it's recorded for us, is this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the content of the sermon, and I want you, as in just a moment, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about the content, even though it's a short sentence, what is actually happening here. I want you to actually just think about this in a sort of more meta way for a moment. See, what Jesus manages to do here is not just to argue about ideology or to give them some new spiritual thoughts to add to their lives, to sort of spice up their ordinary, mundane existence. Uh, it's not just escapist or anything 
at all, in this one sentence, he manages to make people wrestle with, to have an encounter, a fresh, immediate encounter with God, with the Christ, to encounter God's life and presence, and then to be provoked, to be provoked to change. Not in a mean way, not like in or more, but in the way that you say someone like, come on, we're going to keep moving. You don't want to stay here. This isn't, the, this isn't the place you're meant for. Let's keep going. Let's grow. Let's have new life. Let's change. And so in this one sentence, Jesus manages, rather than just to give them ideology or just to say, oh, you know, I go with the school of rabbi so-and-so, and I really think this, and to give them nice intellectual or spiritual thoughts, he forced these people he grew up with to encounter God through himself and to be provoked to respond to the presence of God. Presence and provocation, provoked towards change just in this one encounter. And I want to argue that this is what the point of a sermon is. I often get people say, what about this topic or teach more about this or the culture? And, you know, there's a time and a place for those things. But what we're up to as preachers week by week at our best is we're trying to give you a fresh encounter with the presence of God and his provocation to encourage you to change and to grow and to have more abundant life in response to this fresh encounter with God himself. This is the point of a sermon. It's the point of ministry. It's the point of all spirituality. It's actually the point of your life. It's that we would have this encounter with the presence of Christ himself and to be provoked by him. If you don't believe me, think about these passages in the New Testament where Paul says, I think about my life, the whole point of my life, and here it is. I, and I think you should think about that in the terms of ego, whatever I am, I, Dixon, or I, so-and-so, I, that's been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I that's alive, Instead, Christ lives in me. Or in Philippians, he says, for me to be alive, it's simply Christ. That's what life is. And to die, actually, is to gain him fully. What I want you to hear as we get into this is, is not saying, and if you've been around, which most of you have, you've heard this, it's not to say that your work doesn't matter or you're parenting, you're befriending people, being a good roommate, it doesn't matter. Possibly purchasing and renewing and restoring a building in a neighborhood doesn't matter. Justice doesn't matter. That's not the point. This isn't a pietistic point, you know, where nothing matters except for just kind of your feelings about Jesus or your experience of him. What it's trying to say here is that when you encounter God himself and his life, What's meant to happen is that you yourself embody his presence. And as he provokes you to have more and more of him in your life, to live as Christ, to have less I, that I decrease, that he increase within me, that you more and more have a life that is filled with his presence and provokes him, others, and the world to change and to life through your work and your parenting, and your befriending, 
and you're buying and renewing buildings and your justice. It's meant that our lives are to be sermons that aren't about some ideology, right, or the left, or some economic principle, or some lifestyle, or whatever. Our life are to be sermons, like Jesus preached here, where they were ready for him to, like, wow them. And what he does is provoke them, making them encounter him and his claims and God's claims through him and his work. Our lives are to be sermons that preach Christ, that embody him, that enflesh him. St. Francis is recorded to have said there's no proof that he said it, and you've heard this. Someone said this anyways. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That quote is used all the time is because it makes some sense that our lives are to be demonstrations of the present power and provocation of God himself. Some of you will know the monk Thomas Merton, who's a delightful writer uh, and of spiritual things, but also just of his own life. He was all about um, many beautiful things, but one of the things he was about was trying to connect people throughout the world. And so when he was, he was traveling, I think he was in India, I'm not exactly sure, it was somewhere, um, somewhere not in the West. And he was meeting with people and trying to share the love of God with them. Uh, he actually died of electrocution. And his final recorded words, he was speaking, and his final words before he went to his room and passed were this. He's talking about what the church is called to today. He said, what we are asked to do today, what we are asked to do today is not so much to speak about Christ as to let him live in us so that people may find him by feeling how he lives in us. I just say amen to that. No one needs to see and read it. Hear another Christian saying what they spout about this topic or that. They're tired of it. But do they need to encounter Christ alive in people? What would that look like? What would it look like if it was no longer I who live, but Christ living through us? And I'll just refer to the passage that Jeff read this morning, this passage about the church and the body. Imagine if it was us, not just you. It's a lot of weight to think I have to like be Christ for the world. But we, as the body of Christ, playing our little part. If we were to embody the presence of God to people, if people saw him living in us so that they might find him by feeling what he is like in our life together, it might look something like this. See, Jesus' first message was not about hating your enemies, finally get justice over the nations in Rome for them or for us, whatever we think our enemies might be. It wasn't a message about, oh, they're just persecuting us. They're out to get us. We've got to defend our rights. It wasn't about power grabs through politics. It wasn't about schadenfreude, you know, laughing at people getting their comeuppance and their silliness. It wasn't about fear-mongering. It wasn't even about health and wealth. It was this message about the year of the Lord's favor. And this is where I want to, we're going to take a moment and give you actually a little content to understand what Jesus was doing in this very one-sentence sermon of his. The word is jubilee. The year of the Lord's favor is this Old Testament concept. It's a very deep concept called the year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. 
Jubilee. See, if Jesus is present, and he was in this sermon, if Jesus is present in us, if he is provoking people, what he is provoking them to, what his presence is bringing is good news about Jubilee. God's favor, not displeasure. You hear the word jubilee, jubilant, jubilation. It's the word of feeling or expressing great happiness, great triumph, great joy. Joy, jubilation. The year of jubilee. Now, what was this about? One of, one of the movies that uh, meant a lot to me when I was younger is a movie called Fight Club by David Fincher. How many of you have seen it? Has everybody seen it? Uh, at least if you're old enough. The movie stars Brad Pitt, Ed Norton, and Helena Bottom Carter. It had a very special supporting cast performance from one man known as Marvin Lee Aday, better known to you as Meatloaf, who passed away this week at the age of 74. Fight Club is about many things. I rewatched it with my older uh, kids this year, and I don't think that they were as enamored with it as, as I was in the 90s. But what it's about, in one sense, is this deep desire to want to hit a reset, reset button on culture, just to start it over. Whatever life I'm living, it's not worth it. It's not enough. Uh, it's about life in the Western Hemisphere, particularly North America. And the main character and others that follow him begin to recognize that perhaps the things we're giving our lives to, for instance, flipping through catalogs, wondering what kind of dining set defines him as a person, the main character, that these things aren't the most important thing in life but that we're so immersed in it and seduced and intertwined in these promises and narratives that it takes something forceful, traumatic, and subversive to wake us up from our trance. Perhaps, for example, getting punched in the face really hard, the fight club. It's this desire on behalf of these people in the movie to hit the reset button, to wake people up and to start over. And there's something like this idea, very different from fight club's uh, Sort of, maybe Fight Club has the right diagnosis, but not the right uh, prescription. But this, something like this is happening in the idea of the year of Jubilee. That God says things will go a certain way for a while. You'll get into your habits. You'll get into systems of injustice. You'll get into habits of things that aren't good for you as individuals and as a culture. And you need to get woken up and hit the reset button. That's what the year of Jubilee was about. In Isaiah Jesus quotes Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to all those that are captive, to give sight back to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. And Jesus is saying, I've come to preach this good news, the year of Jubilee, the reset button. And this year of Jubilee refers back to a time in the Old Testament when Israel had been set free from slavery in Egypt, they've been brought out, and God tells them, here's the way I want you to live and flourish so that you and everyone within you will flourish, so that you'll be the presence of God in the midst of the nations, so that you'll provoke the nations to want to be a part of And as they travel through these roads here, where you are the center of, they'll encounter you, and they'll encounter me, and they'll want to see, they'll, they'll see how different your life is, and how beautiful, and they'll want to change, and they'll want to be a part of it, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in order to get there, I realize you're going to settle into habits. And so, after a Sabbath of year, and a Sabbath of seven years, seven times seven, okay, 49 years, the year of Jubilee starts. 
on the 50th year, you were to have a reset button for the entire culture. This is written down in Leviticus 25 if you want to read it later. They were instructed after a Sabbath of Sabbath years, at the 50th year, they were to let all of the land lay fallow. Let it rest. No, no tilling, you know, no sowing, no, none of the work, none of the harvest. Just let it lay fallow. Let it rest. And not just the land. Liberty for all the inhabitants in the land. Did you get into trouble? And did you have to sell yourself into indentured servitude to someone else in the country because it's the only way you could pay off your debts? Guess what? Year 50, you're set free. Everyone set free. All debts canceled. Everything's gone. You're all set free. Did you lose your property? Guess what? You get it back on year 50. Restitution of all real property to people. All hereditary, hereditary property was returned to the family to which it was originally given so that people, even responsibly people, wouldn't languish in poverty forever. This isn't exactly socialism, and it's not capitalism. It's a reminder that everything belongs to God and not to man's desires or power or inability, and that God gives generously to all in need. Everything was reset and made right and a fresh start. And so the prophet Isaiah speaks of this in his prophecy, and he said the Christ that's going to come will finally do this. And why is Isaiah talking about it so many years later? Because guess what? There is no record in the Bible or in any recorded history that Israel actually ever celebrated a year of Jubilee. They were meant to, and they never did. And so the prophet says, the Christ will come, and it will begin. It will be the year of Jubilee. Everything will be made right. Those who are bowed down will be lifted up. Those who have too much will be brought down. It will be made to share for everyone will have enough and no one will have too much and you'll be set free. And if you've gone blind, you'll be healed and everything will be made right. God has not forgotten. He, is, he intends to reestablish justice and righteousness and restoration for all of the world and all of the cosmos and he will do this through the Christ. And so Jesus goes home to his little church where everyone just knows him as Joseph and Mary's boy. They've heard that he's kind of getting, he's getting a little uppity out there. There's lots of talk about it. Maybe he's making it big in the bigger towns over there, in the bigger villages. He's doing a lot of nice things for other people. What's he going to do for us? And rather than just handing out gifts or wowing them with his eloquence, one sentence. The year of Jubilee You're looking at it. And he sits down. It was actually preached sitting, so he's already sitting. The greatest sermon ever. Ordinary little old Jesus that we grew up with. He's not, not preaching what I wanted to hear about my enemies over there in Rome or that sect of, you know, Israel and liberal or conservative and backwards they are, any of those sorts of things. No, he's, not, he's not coming over here and, you know, fixing my little, talking about my little pet hobbies or whatever. He just stands and says, the year of Jubilee, do you remember that? You remember how you never did it? Remember how you've never had it? Do you remember this dream that God gave you and that you were meant to have? 
Here I am. Confronted with this encounter with the presence of God himself and provoked to believe and to change. Isn't this something we still want? Every morning or so I read Apple News and I just see all of these articles over and over again. They're all around the same subject. Psychologists everywhere are saying that after the last two years, we as a country and as as a world, we have experienced our share of collective trauma. I would add that in New York City, we're particularly drowning in it. We hear all this bad news about COVID or cancer or fires or invasions or genocide, abuse, neglect, pain, sorrow, loss. We still need to hear and experience and encounter that Jesus is Jubilee, that he is here. He's not just here spiritually. He says, I am here to actually give sight to the blind, to restore possessions to people, to make sure that people have enough, to let prisoners out of captivity, to help those who are oppressed live freely. It's good news that what is broken in this world, Jesus, is the presence of God and he is provoking change in our world. Good news that he is not leaving us alone. He's not just here to give us a little spiritual spice on our ordinary mundane life. He's saying this world matters. Your culture matters. Your relationships matter. Everything that I've made and that you are, it matters. And I am the presence of God bringing jubilee. Bringing jubilee. And because it's true, this is why it matters how you work, how you parent, how you befriend, how you use your body and your time and your money and your words. It's why we volunteer for safe families or go to visit a neighbor or bring food to people when they're sick or have had a baby. It's why you enjoy good food and drink with friends and celebrate and you cry together and you laugh and you grieve and you give thanks. We do all of these things because Jesus is bringing real jubilee to us and all of these things matter. The cosmos matters. Our relationship matters. Your life has a beautiful and terrifying dignity and it's interconnected with everyone else and everything else. This is why you can pray for a chance to renew a church building, to fill it with the presence of God and to provoke our neighborhoods and our borough and our city to change, to move more and more into Jubilee as it moves into the presence of God. And Jesus is telling them we are meant to experience and embody jubilation and joy. See, this was jubilee. This is closing, in closing. Jubilee, that was the content of Jesus' sermon in the one sentence that he gave. Do you believe still today that that is the content of Christianity? That's the real content. That is the pearl of great price. That is the main truth that Jesus is about jubilee. When you encounter his presence, can you receive it? Guess what? 
Guess what his hometown did? This is why it's kind of ironic to call it the sermon ever. Man, they all fell down on their faces and worshiped him and started rejoicing and giving away what they had to those who needed it and restoring people and letting the indentured servitudes go. No. They walked Jesus off to a cliff and tried to throw him off of it and kill him. Because they didn't do what he wanted. Where are the special favors for your kin, Jesus? He came and started talking about jubilee for all, and they didn't like it, and they tried to kill him for it. So when we encounter his presence, can we move past our fear and our demands and our expectations and receive that Jesus is coming to bring jubilee for us and for all? And Jesus says this, his sermon, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. In your presence. Think about that. What Jesus is saying to you again this morning is that he is Jubilee right now in your presence. He's fulfilling it now in your presence. By presence. Through your presence, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Not just the Jesus we talk about, but the one that people begin to feel and know what he's like. What dignity, what hope, what joy. All of this is given to you through this greatest sermon ever, through the greatest preacher ever. And the reason I put this one over the Sermon on the Mount is simply this. He got the entire job done in one single sentence. I am not remotely there yet. I probably never will be. I'm not a great preacher, but every preacher can have preacher goals, right? To more and more find a way, as we do to one another in our lives, to share the presence of Jesus, to provoke one another to change, to embody jubilee together in as short a time and in as pithy a way as possible. May God give us this grace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you.